Everybody, welcome to Bedside Matters. This is the podcast that addresses the medical issues that impact every single one of us every single day and will hopefully give you the answers you're looking for so you can be more informed and healthier. I'm joined by Dr. Kipper, Anna Vecchino. I'm Peter Tilden. How are you guys doing? Doing great. Great, Peter. In today's episode, we are going to be discussing a few very interesting things. First of all, there's a new treatment for COVID. And then secondly, we're going to be talking about cardiac monitoring and AFib. And ready for this, hold, hold on to your tie-dye shirts because it looks like MDMA and psilocybin are going to be approved medicines and you'll find out where and how they're going to do that. And then the Hey, What About Me? Really interesting. We've got a caller who wants to know about being a pot smoker and how that could affect potentially their surgery. So we'll get to all of that. The first question I got for you, David, is there's so much about COVID, whether you get the new shot, whether being sick provides you better immunity, side effects, all this stuff. And now we're hearing about a potential, not only COVID drug, but something that could work for respiratory illness and other stuff too, correct? Correct. And if you think the general population is confused, they did some studies on doctors in general. And doctors that are primary care doctors, they're just as confused. So there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of confusion. What we do know is that we know that there is a treatment, Paxlovid, which is a pill, antiviral pill, and that does a brilliant job of knocking out COVID if you take it within the first three days. It's advertised as the first five days, but if you start it after day three, you're not going to get much of a response. So the good news is there's another treatment that's been FDA approved and will be out very soon. They're just finishing their third stage of their clinical trials. And this is something called pegylated interferon lambda. Just rolls right off your tongue. Mm -hmm. Um, Actually, the funny part of this is if you look at the initials, the initials are P-I-L. It's not a pill. (laughs) It's a subcutaneous injection one time only, and it is superior to Paxlovid. Sooner you take it, just like Paxlovid, the better it works. But head-to-head studies between these two therapies is that the pill, the pegylated interferon, works much better. So we will now have another option. This is great. The problem here clearly is that you have to go to a doctor's office to get this. It's not going to be in a pharmacy. But there's another issue that starting somewhere in the summer or fall, the Paxlovid prescriptions that were paid for by the government, the government paid, I think, $530 Uh, for a course of Paxlovid. We got it as consumers for free. That's no longer going to be free to the consumer, and they're speculating that it's going to be much higher than $530. Wait, wait. what? $530? So that Paxlovid that I had, that I got for free from the CVS when I had to have, have it, was actually costing $530. And now they're going to tell us that we have to actually pay that. But we're not going to pay $530. We're going to pay oh. much more. We don't oh, know what oh. that number is going to be. 530 was actually relatively that good That was the news. bargain basement. What David's saying is you're going to wish you could get it for 530 Maybe for black market. I and eggs. I can't afford anything anymore. Uh, yeah, yeah well, an egg and a Paxlovid and you're done for the month. Wow. I is that way? Can I ask you something? Because we, we always go for the madness at the, the drug companies. Is that because they had the race to produce this stuff. And even though they sold it to government in mass numbers, the creation of it costs so much because they had to do it so quickly? Or is this something that's been around 
for a long, long time, and they're really, really charging us through the nose. The technology has been around a very long time. Antivirals, we see this in herpes, outbreaks, AIDS. We see this in a number of other viral illnesses. But the problem is that because there is no other game in town, and the government, I think, is tired of paying for this, there's another really interesting issue. We've spoken about this before. I believe, personally, as a clinician, that Paxlovid should be given as a preventative. So if there's someone in your home that you're intimate with and they come down with COVID, it would be smart, and it does work, if you not symptomatic at this point, start Paxlovid. You're not going to get it. And the, the reason this is important is that people can have a mild case of COVID and they can end up with long COVID. And so if you could break that potential, then you're way ahead of the game. So I think, Peter, part of the answer to this is the government may, <laughs> I'm hoping, is aware of this fact that people are now starting to use this as a preventative. So if that were the case, you wouldn't just have to go by a positive test to get the Paxlovid from your doctor. And that's another issue. We've talked about this. By the time you get a positive test on these variants, you're into the illness at least three, four days. And by then, there's such a strong viral load that it's not going to be as effective. I can't tell you the number of friends that I have had in the past six months, you know, when there's all the flare-ups and stuff, people getting COVID and people having some comorbidities and the doctor still won't prescribe them the Paxlovid. And it just, it makes me, I, I feel furious and I wish that people would get out ahead of it. But now that I know it's going to be $700, oh well. <laughs> you know what? My mother would say, just don't get sick. Moving on. It looks like there's more AFib in the general population than we anticipated. And before we get into that, David, can you first explain exactly the parameters of what AFib is? Because a lot of people use that term or hear that term and don't really know what it means. So atrial fibrillation is a rhythm disturbance of the normal cycling of, of the heart electrical system. So instead of the heart beating on a very regular basis, there are areas in the electrical axis, if you will, which starts at the top of the atrium. That's a little chamber in the left, over the left ventricle. It starts at the very top. It runs through the entire atrium. It gets down to that central switching station that sits between the atrium and the ventricle. And then that creates, when it gets to that point, that creates a contraction of the atrium. All the blood that's in the atrium then goes down into the ventricle. The mitral valve opens. All the blood goes through the mitral valve into the ventricle. The mitral valve closes. And then that electrical energy then traverses through the ventricle. When it gets to the bottom there, the ventricle contracts and all the blood is spit out into the aorta. That's a normal system. The heart has a very unusual and unique capacity that its cells in the, in the muscle, in the atrium and the ventricle, have their own electrical activity. It's a fail-safe system so that if that electrical system fails, the heart cells themselves can generate an electrical impulse. It sounds great. It doesn't work. But oh. it was really a great idea, but it, it never is enough to sustain a regular heartbeat. So what atrial fibrillation is, atrial fibrillation is a chaotic 
input of electrical energy, again, from probably some of these cells, into that electrical system. So instead of it being a very rhythmic cycling, the atrium itself fibrillates, it flutters, it, it's like shaking, it's not working normally. And when that happens and it's not contracting normally, there are pieces of blood, blood clots, debris, that because of that activity can be sent out into the circulation because of that fibrillation. So atrial fibrillation is the number one leading cause of stroke. And as we get older, we're we're predisposed to atrial fibrillation. It's very common. We have a number of devices that can identify atrial fibrillation. You're sitting down, you're watching a movie, or you're just had a big fight with somebody, and all of a sudden you feel your heart pounding. It might be fibrillating. So you pull out your Apple Watch, you pull out the Cardia, which is that little device where you put your two thumbs on the end of this little device, and you will get a readout of your heart rhythm. And if you're in atrial fibrillation, you're likely it's likely to show up and when you know that you have atrial fibrillation first time, that's a very important moment to call your doctor because when the heart goes from a regular rhythm to a fibrillating rhythm, that's when these little pieces of debris and blood get knocked off and go into the circulation. Is it genetically predisposed? Is it an event that you can do, an injury or something can cause it? Uh, does it start later in life for a reason? I mean, what are the, what what? How do you prevent it, and what are the what's the cause? It can it be an event, a, like a stressful event? It's more likely th- there's a huge genetic component to this. It's also an aging component. So by the time we get into our seventies and beyond, the likelihood of developing atrial fibrillation is is very high. There are new devices that are out now that are called intracardiac monitoring devices. And what these are, they're the size of, it's smaller than a dime that you insert, and you can do this in the doctor's office under a local anesthetic, it takes 10 minutes, and you put this little device under the the muscle up in the upper left chest, and that will communicate with your heart, and that will be the most sensitive device for picking up atrial fibrillation. Probably, probably five to ten times more likely to pick it up with this device. So, if you're at risk for atrial fibrillation, or you've had atrial fibrillation, this is the Cadillac of these monitoring devices. Now, for this, again, you have to go to a doctor that knows how to do this. Uh, insurance does cover these, but that's a lot more cumbersome than buying an Apple Watch or buying a Cardia. So the problem there is that with one of these other devices, they're not as sensitive. So mm-hmm. you might have an Apple Watch uh, and think that, I don't have atrial fibrillation. My heart's just racing fast. You very well might have atrial fibrillation that wasn't picked up on the watch. I'm not saying don't get the watch and don't get the cardia. I think these things are fantastic. But at at least understand that there can be some false negatives in these. Whereas this device, there there really are no false negatives. Is this an expensive device? Like you show up and you can just do it in the doctor's office? Most doctors can do it? The insurance covers this device, and the doctor, of course, has to indicate uh, in making their diagnosis why this is important, but it's, 
it that's not the problem that won't be an issue okay all right i'm getting palpitations from this topic i just want to point out that the study that this was done is called the stroke af study now i know af stands for atrial fibrillation but i feel like af has been co-opted in the common vernacular to mean something else so stroke af it just reads differently to me just pointing that out okay moving on and we thank you for that clarity. You're welcome, that's, everybody. That's the thing that this show does that I'm most proud of. <laughs> Peter, to, to your point, which I think is very important, if you have somebody in your family that's had a stroke um, and you are, by definition, predisposed, you have to pay attention to this. And you want so to discuss that with your doctor. If you're stroke AF, you better have that conversation. Yes. See, it kind and of plays. Be prepared, Boy Scouts. If you think you're having a stroke, is it still trying to smile because both sides of your face have to go up and hands in the air? Is that, or is that like a wives' tale type thing? I've never heard that. Really? If you're having a stroke, yes, half of your body is not going to look the same. So if you can smile and both sides yeah. go up and both arms go up, if you look like a football ref that's only half signaling, then you, you have an issue. Wow. I didn't, I've never known that. It's always one side. It's always one side. If if you can't smile on either side, and I know plenty of those people, um, that's not a stroke. That's probably depression. It's probably something else. Or everybody in the studio that I pitched a TV to, a comedy to. No smile. No <laughs> right. <laughs> so this is a shocker to me. I don't know, Anna. And It's not and, a shocker well, to me because I have a husband who's very into this whole thing into this world okay what's this world ready here we go here we go mdma and psilocybin are approved psilocybin. as medicines they're approved as medicines for the first time in australia hey mate um how how is that possible because we've i mean on other shows we've done interviews where you go well they haven't done enough testing yet and and they don't know what the dosage is and they don't know how it can be used and let's just clear it for the fda and i just read that over here in the states it may be clear next year. Is it because we're so desperate, David, to treat depression that, and, and they're getting some anecdotal stuff that this indicates they should try it? Mental health issues are vastly undertreated. They're under-recognized. They're responsible for most uh, addictive disorders. Uh, certainly when you see mass killings, uh, these people are not mentally stable. So there's a great incentive to try to treat mental illness. And mental illness in this country has really taken a back seat since the mid-70s when all these hospitals were closed. And the resources for mental illness, not just in research, but also in training. There aren't that many psychiatrists out there. And there are psychologists, thank goodness, but they don't prescribe medications. So we need a boatload of trained professionals that can prescribe these medications that rebalance the neurotransmitters, these brain chemicals, that actually will mitigate many of these illnesses. And psilocybin and MDMA are two of those options that we have. MDMA is ecstasy. That's a common word for it. And basically what you get with MDMA is you get a boatload of serotonin. It's a very uh, quick and concentrated delivery system of serotonin. Psilocybin, very much the same. It's, it's a big serotonin delivery system. And 
regulating this, Peter, you're exactly right, is is very hard to do because we don't really have Pfizer making MDMA and we don't have Moderna making the psilocybin. We don't have control on this. You know, Oregon this year is being licensed to prescribe these two products. Right. In the 60s, when Timothy Leary was around at Harvard, he was the forerunner of this. But these these products have been around for over 100 years. But you know what I'm sensing, David? So if the regulations aren't specific, so I'm a psychiatrist who's going to do this, and I do it, and my patient has an adverse reaction or uh, something bad happens, it's on you because you made the decision to do it. Right. We just said, check it out. Then you used to be a psychiatrist. Right. Yeah, that's what that's it sounds like. I think the issue is, at least with psilocybin and the, the, they're issuing them in a controlled environment. You're with the psychiatrist. They're not just sending you home with like 10 acid tabs and good luck. You know what I mean? Like they're, they're, you're working with your psychiatrist. Is that, isn't but, that but correct? But there's not enough, but there's a, not enough of a, um, a background of a, of a history that you, Oh, they've been doing studies on this stuff for a long time, I think. There aren't enough psychiatrists. That's part of the problem. What they did was they started studying this in the military. This has been the recent onslaught of research. And they found that in the military, these men and women had a lot of PTSD, and they started experimenting with psilocybin. And what they found was that PTSD was dramatically improved, if not eliminated, by using psilocybin. So this is what really sparked this interest. And we've also seen that um, MDMA has been very uh, productive for people that have had treatment-resistant depression. So has psilocybin. And we've also been using things like ketamine, which has entered into the conversations many years ago. But again, these are very hard products to regulate. And the research is ongoing. And Peter, you said it in the beginning of this when you introduced this. It's not like we have a boatload of of real scientific data. A lot of this right. is just anecdotal. Well, it's it's interesting because we, on one of the other shows, we do talk to a researcher at um, Johns Hopkins who said it's really hard to test this stuff because you have to depress people. First of all, you have to do a population that's healthy because taking a population that's not healthy off the depression meds, testing this, how much do you give them, how long do you give it to them for, and then assuming you can put them back on their meds and the receptors are going to work the same way, that's a big responsibility. So they're not even there yet. So it's it's fascinating to me that they're going to roll this out regardless and see how it goes. It's not going to be quite that simple. You're going to have to have special training as a psychiatrist. So already the pool of clinicians is so limited. And now you're going to impose other restrictions and requirements on that pool. So that's going to uh, distill down even further. So although it sounds, I, I think this sounds really interesting because there really are a lot of people that are resistant to these treatments, knowing which antidepressant to give, which anxiety medicine to give has a lot to do with which imbalance you have and which neurotransmitter. That isn't something that is common knowledge. So it's already tricky. 
and this, but, but it is if you read Overdrive by Dr. David Kipper. <laughs> there you go. Mm-hmm. What I found, what I found to be really interesting in this is that the the studies where we saw benefit, these people got anywhere from one to three doses of this medication. Right. And that was it for a year. So Which is it's funny not, because that that raises the question for the the drug companies. They like drugs that you stay on for a long period of time. Right, chronic. They don't want a drug that yeah. you take two times and you're better. That's an oive in the corporate suite. They go, wow, guys, guys, great, great for the people we're curing. We need to sell a lot more of this stuff. So it's going to be interesting to see how the experiment in Australia and then in, in, in our own country in Oregon plays out. But on the other hand, you keep your fingers crossed that there's some hope here for the depressed population because it's it's really yeah, it's I'm really... looking forward to watching it all unfold. I've seen it firsthand with a lot of people who've had some using it in a clinical setting, and that's obviously anecdotal, but I think it's really cool that there's something else happening because people need some some something. They don't have resources. We, we talked about this on a previous show. The government now has a 988 phone number that you can call when you're in trouble. That phone number doesn't work unless you're immediately threatening suicide. If you call and say you're severely depressed, you've got a horrible anxiety, you know, can you direct me to some resources? They're not interested. This has to be related to an immediate suicide Jeez. ideation. When you when you do call, like I have the good actors insurance, the Screen Actors Guild insurance is really good insurance. Like I have the good insurance. And when, when I was dealing with depression many years ago, trying to get routed to somebody to find somebody, it was like, it would be faster for me to drive and buy a firearm and easier for me to buy a firearm than for me to get mental health help. It was so difficult to get. And so I, that always, that memory of how hard that was always mm. stuck with me and I want people to have something else. So I think it's pretty cool that this is coming about. To make you more depressed with okay, what cool. you just said, Let's do that, guys. Said, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> there are fewer and fewer psychiatrists that are actually accepting insurance reimbursement. Mm, yeah. So many of the doctors, of the limited number of doctors we have, are no longer taking people's insurance, no matter how good your insurance is. Yeah. So add that to the soup. So let's just keep our eye on this the breaking news to see how it goes. Maybe one day we can recommend people to do that. Can you imagine? I mean, they shut it down in the 60s. Timothy Leary and Richard Albert were trying to do this, and they shut it down because it went awry in a whole different whole different way and suppressed it for a long time. Before we go, we always end an episode with, hey, what about me? And we got a caller. It's somewhat drug-related and fascinating phenomenon that you may not have heard of. So let's take the call. Hi, Dr. Kipper. My name's Elizabeth. I'm scheduled to have surgery, and I wanted to know if my pot smoking which helps with my sleep issues, would impact how well the anesthesia works. A friend told me that they heard something about that. Elizabeth, that's a great question, and your friend was right. Uh, We're now learning that people that are undergoing anesthesia or even pain management for that issue are needing more and more anesthetic Uh, during a procedure, because it turns out that the liver, which metabolizes not only the anesthetic, also metabolizes or breaks down the marijuana products, whether it's THC or CBD, they're all broken down in the liver. So the liver sees 
these two things coming in. You're, you're having a colonoscopy and they give you propofol. But the day before you were smoking or you were using edibles and the liver has to decide, am I going to go after the marijuana and break that down or am I going to go after the propofol and break that down? So because the marijuana is clouding the soup and it may prefer to go after the propofol first or go after the marijuana first, one of those is getting broken down too soon. And in order to make sure that person is comfortable, we often find ourselves giving a much higher dose of these anesthetics. The important message here is if you're going to have surgery, be honest about it and tell your anesthesiologist, I'm smoking five blunts a day. <laughs> Adjust. <laughs> that seems excessive. Yes. The problem with that is that marijuana is not all created equal. So if you're doing edibles, those stick around your system a lot longer. They're metabolized slower. If you're smoking the flower, that's, you know, that's a quicker metabolism. Oh my gosh. So wow. what you, sh and look, wow, we, right. we ask about alcohol use in order to prepare someone for surgery. Now it's going to be happening, I believe, Elizabeth, as doctors are going to be required to put that on their questionnaire before somebody has a procedure. Real quick, I know we're almost out of time, but I'm an alcoholic. I'm not going to admit that to you. So if I don't admit that to you, how do you know to bolster my anesthesia and how, by how much? It's an interesting question, Peter, and that's actually been studied. More people are likely to admit alcoholism than they are to admit being pot smokers. There's a different kind of connotation to smoking marijuana. So to our listeners, tell your doctor if you're, the doctor's going to be so thankful that you're telling them this because they're going to be able to protect you. Yeah. Um, they don't, they don't want to mess up their job because you didn't tell them the information. They want to know the information. Wow. And wow. by the way, guys, if you want your question. If you have a question for our Hey, What About Me segment, all you have to do is reach out to us at bedsidematters.org, write us a note there, or leave us a message, and Dr. Kipper just might answer your question. And to recap, so what we talked about today was the promising new COVID drug. There's more AFib in the broader population that's being studied now, so make sure you check out either your Apple Watch, your what's that thing called, the device where you put your thumbs, or call your doctor if your heart speeds up while you're watching a soap opera and it shouldn't be speeding up. Uh, MDMA and psilocybin, legal in Australia. They're, test, they're going to start testing it here in Oregon and maybe it'll be approved and maybe it'll help all of us out. And pot, you smoke pot and you have surgery, tell them that you're willing to and don't lie. Yeah, yeah. Or they won't be able to put you under. Everybody, thank you for joining us. Thank you for today, Dr. Kipper, producer Laurie, Anna, thank you. Uh, if you're sick and tired of being sick and tired, follow us at bedsidematters.org. And as Anna said, you got a question? Dr. Kipper just may answer for you. Go to bedsidematters.org. We'll see you next week. The information on Bedside Matters should not be understood or construed as medical or health advice. The information on Bedside Matters is not a substitute for medical or health advice from a professional who is aware of the facts and circumstances of your individual situation. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with your friends. We'll see you next time.